Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kim, your host and producer of this podcast. For this week's season two, episode four of the podcast, Tung Wen joined me as a guest. Tung and I connected back in December on Instagram when we discovered each other's podcasts. Tung and I shared many stories about our upbringing being raised by our Southeast Asian parents. Tung is a Vietnamese American podcaster, engineer, and musician. He currently runs a podcast called Work Sleeve, which can be found on all streaming services. In our conversation, Tung talked about the complexities of his own upbringing in rural South Dakota, where his family struggled to survive as refugees and, while navigating life in a mostly white community, collided. He talked about his time when he left home at age 16, working odd jobs, and would eventually attend college to pursue engineering. He talked about his recent move to Denver and his hopes to find community in other Asian American spaces. Please check this episode out and follow his work on Instagram and Twitter at WorkSleeve. Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnamese American owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or follow them on Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle or on Facebook. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Randy from the Bunmy Chronicles podcast, and I am very excited to have uh, my guest, uh, his name is Tung Wen. So Tung Wen has a podcast called Work Sleeve. And I want to say uh, it's such a pleasure to have you on. And uh, we met through our interaction on Instagram. I don't know how, who approached who. I'm thinking I might have to look through the DMs who actually do the first uh, stone into the water there. But yes, we connected through Instagram and we had, you know, talked about our own Vietnamese American experiences. And so, yes, I wanted to get the ball rolling. So welcome, Tung. And I was wondering if you can uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, Randy, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, you said I have my own uh, podcast. It's called Work Sleeve where I, you know, explore similar topics as you kind of exploring my Vietnamese heritage and so forth like that. But uh, yeah, that you brought up a good question. I'm, just, I'm curious uh, who contacted you on Instagram. Um, <laughs> but a little bit about myself, you know, uh, I'm 26 years old and I'm currently living in Denver, Colorado. Um, I'm originally from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and uh, I am the son of um, some Vietnamese refugees. So... Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to speaking you t- with you today about kind of um, a topic that I think we both have an interest in, just kind of exploring our own Asian identity. And also, uh, you know, um, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, just a good conversation with you. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, sharing that. And, um, you know, ne- so we're exploring the theme of 1975 uh, for the second season of this podcast. And I'm not sure... Uh, so when I think when I say 1975, what are you thinking of? What comes in, what comes into mind? You know, that's uh, that's an interesting year, the 70s, 75. You know, I think about like my mom and my dad immediately because they were born in the early 70s. 
I think they were born probably 70 to 73, around that range there. Mm -hmm. So when I think of the year 1975, I immediately associate it to my parents and, you know, kind of their birth. Mm. It's when we think of that particular year, uh, this was a life uh, seismic changing year for the Southeast Asian uh, countries of Laos, of Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos and Vietnam, uh, they were ready to conclude their civil war. Um, the North had t finally taken over South Vietnam, which would lead to the mass exodus of Vietnamese folks to America, to Australia, to other countries. And for Cambodia, it was also the beginning of the Khmer Rouge, which would later result in a uh, mass genocide. So I look at 1975 as the year that really started to change the dynamics of our community forever. And that would place um, a lot of uh, refugees into America. And being that you and I are uh, children of both refugees, uh, I, I look at it as now we are the uh, torchbearers of our parents' legacy and our own legacy that we're creating right now as our uh, parents' generation, the baby boomer, late baby boomers, are uh, into retirement uh, stage. So uh, getting to that, so how did your family arrive on their journey from Vietnam to America and eventually to South Dakota? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. And it's, you know, it's kind of like an origin story that I feel, I, I think I've told you this before. It's a, a story that I've told probably 50 different versions of. And I think that's just a product of, you know, over the course of getting older, I learned more about my family and I guess um, the lack of knowledge I do have about my family's origin story is a probably good representation of how, um, I guess, my relationship with my family is. Um, but to answer that question, though, you know, let's start with my dad's side. My grandfather was in the, um, the Vietnam War and he fought for the, uh, the southern uh, Vietnamese. And, you know, after the war was over, um, from my understanding, he was uh, imprisoned um, kind of like a re-education camp of sorts in Vietnam for about a couple of years or so. And when he got out of that, um, they received a um, somewhat like an invitation to come to the, the States, to America. And that's kind of how my dad's family um, began their process to America. Uh, on my mother's side, um, you know, kind of similar story. Uh, it was a, you know, the, the the product of the war, essentially. You know, the war kind of was mainly the reason why both of my parents were able to come to the United States. My mom's side, um, she is uh, half American, and from the research that I've done, just about that era of time, um, you know, there is problem there. I think there, I, I'm, I have a reason to believe like there was like a process of. Um, there was like a program where children or Vietnamese children that resembled like American features were kind of like received an invitation to come to the States. And I think that process was simply by just their physical features. Um, my mom does not know her dad. Um, I don't think anyone in my mom's family knows her dad. Um, I mean, we have reasons to believe it's, it's an American GI um, but, you know, my mom has features of, you know, really afro, curly uh, hair, 
um, with um, you know some more African features in her face as well. So my mom's process, my mom's path to the states was um, being um, you know, you know half American or uh, half Vietnamese of sorts. So that was kind of her uh, path. So you know both of my family's path to the states, from my understanding. Um, immigrated, started the process in like the early 90s. And I think they spent maybe six months to a year in the Philippines for some education. And um, I think at that moment, they received a sponsorship from South Dakota. There was a church, I think it was like one of the Lutheran churches in South Dakota um, that decided to sponsor my family. And from my understanding, uh, I think it was one of those things where they took any opportunity they could get um, to come to the States. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, they were not um, trying to explore South Dakota or the Midwest for that matter. I think a lot of Vietnamese immigrants uh, knew that there was predominant, you know, more Vietnamese civilizations like in California or Texas or, you know, larger metro areas. But I think for my family, it was probably a circumstance of, you know, just the right opportunity, the right time kind of thing. And they took it. So mm-hmm. that's how they, you know, came to the Midwest. South yeah. Dakota. Yeah. And in kind of like backtracking, did, did your grandma on your mom's side ever talk about um, who her um, father was and, and also what was the journey like for your grandparents? Because obviously like your parents were really young, especially like during the time of the seventies to remember. Um, I think I would want to start out with, did, uh, what was the relationship like uh, for your grandma? Did, did, did your grandma ever tell your mother about yeah. her past, her history? You know, that's something that I've never asked my mom about. Um, just more information about her father and stuff. It's always been a mystery growing up on my mom's side. And um, like I said before, I'm 26 years old. And at this point in my life, I don't have any living grandparents. Uh, my grandmother on my mom's side passed probably two, three years ago. And then my grandmother on my dad's side passed probably six years ago. My grandpa on my dad's side passed before I was born. Mm. So, you know, I think at this moment in my life, I don't really have, um, I don't really know those answers, really. It's still kind of a, um, I'm still in kind of like the discovery mode. And it's something that I've, I guess, become a little bit more um, proactive about is learning more about my heritage because after my last grandmother passed, I realized, you know, I no longer have access to those stories. I no longer have access to those resources of my grandparents to ask them, you know, what their journey was like. So pretty much all I know right now is through the lens of, you know, my aunts and uncles and my parents. And, um, you know, that's kind of the stage where I'm at right now. But yeah, I can't really give you a solid answer to that question about, you know, kind of my grandparents experience. I'm sure it wasn't easy. I I know that for sure. Um, Yeah. But yeah, think, that, yeah, they came to the States with uh, definitely very little to no support. I mean, little to no money in their pockets. Uh, both my, my, my grandmother came to the States working as a housekeeper, um, and then she soon retired. You know, my parents ended up just taking care of her. My aunts and uncles took care of her and stuff like that. So, you know, it was never really any established careers in the States. 
Right. And uh, you discussed something that's very important that a lot of folks in the v- who are living in the Vietnamese diaspora uh, struggle with is not knowing their own history. Um, mm-hmm. I'm in my mid-30s. I'm a decade older than you. And my grandma passed away a year ago, but she was the only living grandparent that I had for the past 20 years. My grandfather died on my mom's side when I was 12 years old. And on my dad's side of the family, my grandma died when my dad was little. And my uh, grandfather on my dad's side uh, died when I was nine, but he was living in Vietnam. So I had no recollection whatsoever, no relationship, no connection to him. Yeah. And uh, when my grandma was dying of Alzheimer's the last few years, uh, I really regretted not being able to speak Vietnamese because knowing the kind of person that I am, I'm a person who's very curious. I like to ask questions. Mm-hmm. I do like to write. So I'm the creative guy in the family. And so not being able to have these personal conversations and the the kind of conversations that I can, that I always felt like, gosh, if I could speak Vietnamese the way I speak English or, or my grandma could you know be well-versed in English, I can only imagine how many important stories there are that I can add and connect the dots to. So I think what we see in our own communities that, you know, our own younger folks, people in the millennial generation, Generation Z, um, we uh, we still struggle of knowing what that past was, the, the effects of that war. I mean, we hear about, yeah, they came to America, but what was their life like during those moments of being in the battlefield or during the time of war or during the escape? You know, what was that whole experience really like? And and even talking to my cousins who are younger than me, you know, they never had that conversation with their parents yet. And and I find myself realizing that, man, this this part of our history is right. more important. And sometimes we don't realize how uh, essential it really is to understanding our own relationship with our parents. Why was my relationship with my parents so complicated? You know, what made it complicated? Uh, what were the roots behind their own trauma? And I think understanding that at least made me more compassionate. Um, right. Right. So um, for your parents coming into the United States, I would assume as kids, I believe, how old were they when they arrived to the U.S.? And what was their recollection of, you know, Vietnam and the refugee camps, if you're able to, you know, if they were able, if they were able to tell you anything about it? Yeah. So, I mean, my parents came to the States probably in their early 20s, actually. Oh, OK. Uh, so I think they immigrated to like Sioux Falls in like 92 or so. Mm-hmm. And I was born shortly after I was born in 93. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not really sure about their experience um, during that whole process of traveling, you know, overseas and stuff like that. But I do know, you know, growing up in their mid 20s into a brand new country and also having a child immediately thereafter, um, it definitely was something that um, I guess kind of made my relationship with my parents a little complicated. Um, It was more of, you know, I think there's many times where now that I look back at it, I mean, my parents didn't know any English. Uh, my mom never received any proper education, even in Vietnam. I think she went to school up to like grade two or three. And yeah. she was pretty much, um, you know, just hanging out, um, 
being a housekeeper for families and being a babysitter and stuff like that. Um, and, and, you know, similar path with my father, you know, he was also not high school or college educated. So coming to the States, they had to kind of focus on starting their own lives. And I think uh, when I was born, they kind of had to put pause on a lot of their kind of dreams and try to be a parent, try to take care of a kid. Um, you know, so, I mean, that my parents... You know, growing the states, coming to the states. My mom was also a housekeeper. She's been a housekeeper all of her life, a housekeeper and a you know a stay-at-home mom. And my dad, you know, he worked in several manufacturing facilities and some pork packaging plants. He is now a truck driver, um, but very you know proud blue-collar family. Um, but you know, I, I I just remember growing up, it was always difficult to. Um, for them to just kind of make ends meet, essentially. You know, that was kind of their priorities, was one, being a parent, but also two, um, having food, shelter, and just kind of like, you know, the bare minimum, essentially. So it was definitely, I, I definitely see that struggle in them. Mm. And also, did you have any other siblings? Were you the oldest, I presume? Yeah, yeah. So I'm the oldest. Um, I have a younger brother who is now 19 years old. And I have a younger sister who is uh, 14. So oh, wow. There's a gap. Yeah, there's definitely, definitely a little a gap, gap there. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a big gap. And so what was that dynam- dynamic like? Uh, which we'll get into your upbringing, especially, you know, being the first one born in the U.S. like I was. And and tell us about the environment uh, growing up in Sioux Falls in South Dakota. Because when I think of South Dakota or when I... You know, immediately what comes to mind with South Dakota is it's vast farmland, mm-hmm. it's flat, mm-hmm. uh, Native American reservations, uh, uh, very white, uh, not so much diversity outside of the Native Americans and uh, white folks. Um, right. right. Yeah. What was that uh, dynamic like growing up? And also at the same time, being this big brother that you had to be because there's a sense of like this burden, this responsibility because Mm -hmm. you are the first one born, your parents are working really hard to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. What was that dynamic like of being the big brother and then being the first one having to nose dive into these, uh, to nose dive into school, knowing that you don't have many people around you that you can look up to within the Vietnamese community. Yeah, well, I think I think your observations of South Dakota generally is uh, pretty spot on. I mean, it is a pretty uh, kind of a barren uh, place. It's kind of when you go to South Dakota, you can easily find yourself in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by you know just grass and prairies and just nothing. But it is you know there, there's two folds to it. It's also a very calm and a very um, slow pace of life, which I find uh, I think a lot of people also try to seek. Um, growing up though, I mean, I think the, the fact that it wasn't as diverse and it's pretty predominantly white, um, did affect my upbringing a lot. I mean, yeah, being the oldest, I was pretty much the guinea pig for everything. Um, I always kind of, I was, you know, I was assimilating to American culture with my parents at the same rate, if anything, like, I mean, Vietnamese is my first language and I started learning English in, uh, kindergarten taking like uh you know special classes for english um but you know it was uh it was a huge cultural barrier so i think 
you know, as I get older and I see my brother go through high school and now I see my sister about to go through school and high school and so forth like that. Um, you know, there's that cliche where they kind of do have it a little easier because, you know, I kind of broke, broke some barriers when I was going through those uh, stages in life, you know, just dealing with the, the, the trivial things like parent teacher conferences or like school supplies, school shopping, um, you know, hanging out with other kids in the neighborhood, going to movies, sleepovers, like the trivial things were challenges for me growing up. Um, yeah. And I think that oftentimes when you're the first person um, born, there is a, a challenge that you almost have to be an adult to mm-hmm. our parents, right? Um, you know, learning how to uh, read the bills, uh, learning how to read their documents. I mean, I know I had to do that for my mom. Um, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember paying bills on the phone for my mom when I was like, you know, just eight, nine years old, memorizing like her social, <laughs> just so I could like pay the phone bill or whatever oh online. And it's like that kind of stuff. And you know, I remember when we first got our computer, like our first desktop computer. Uh, you know, when the dial-up internet was still a thing, and I remember like we kept getting viruses on the computer probably because of my fault, you know, cause I was probably just download a bunch of, you know, music or you know, whatever, get viruses. But then my dad would make me call tech, tech support. <laughs> and oh my God. like nine o'clock at night, just try to figure out the computer. So yeah, I, I remember long phone conversations, just this little kid trying to talk to, um, an ex like a tech support guy on the other line i i remember having to do that you brought up a, an old memory of mine that i haven't really thought of but yeah that i had to do that for my dad and and yeah. i and, and the thing was that i was a very shy kid and yeah. i really hated having to talk to strangers and that mm-hmm. having to be forced to do it was so out of my comfort zone it gave me so much anxiety and in some ways as I grew up I also became very resentful of having to shoulder that burden I didn't want to be an older brother to be honest with you I didn't want to be the first I I got sick and tired of having to carry that weight on my shoulder but at the same time feel like I'm being punished or shamed by my parents if I'm not you know up to par so yeah I think that was very difficult too but did that also affect your relationship with your parents as you got older yeah I mean uh, I mean, to add, add on to earlier, I mean, like, I was lucky enough where I had a stay-home mother, so I we always had a, a parent at home. So, I mean, I didn't have to do chores. I didn't really have to, like, watch my siblings. My mom did that because she would stay home. Um, so, I mean, I was lucky in that regard where I can kind of just be a rebel and be kind of a troublemaker off of my own and just get yelled at. But I didn't have, like, responsibilities of taking care of my little sister, my sister or brother but no um what you're saying is like you know i butted head with my parents every single day um every single day and it was definitely i mean looking back at it now it was pretty dark i mean i moved out of my parents place when i was 16 years old really yeah so i i moved out really really young and uh, you know slept on friends floors and i was living with a girlfriend at a time and yeah, I mean, sleeping in cars and stuff like that. So, wow. I mean, it got to that point where it just kind of got the tension was a little too, too great. And it was like, I just had to leave. Yeah. So I kind of just separated myself. I'm thinking to myself at 16 years old, you know, you buttheads, you know, you're trying to, your parents couldn't understand what you're dealing with in mm-hmm. school and your future. And you, 
were butting heads with your parents because, you know, they couldn't understand. Well, I mean, I mean, you couldn't understand what they were dealing with. You couldn't, you didn't have a frame of reference to work with and understand why they had certain feelings, certain biases, certain mm-hmm. uh, um, ideologies that that they held on to because of how they were raised. So I'm thinking to myself at 16 years old, I know that when I was 16 years old, I wanted to leave my parents' place all the time, but I never did. But somehow to make that decision, I can only imagine what that was like for you and how your parents were feeling and and your siblings at the same time who were like just kids and dealing with that turmoil. What was the whole experience like from 16 and then on, you know, and where um, where did it start to circle back? It's like, you know what, I'm I'm starting to be at the point where I can start to make amends or try to reconcile mm-hmm. yeah definitely i mean yeah moving out at 16 was definitely difficult um i guess i would like to say i had a good kind of support group friends and i also had a, a long-term i was in a long-term relationship at the time too i pretty much just you know lived with my girlfriend at the time um it definitely taught me how to you know kind of just be on your own be independent i mean i was working my first job was burger king um, I worked, I started working when I was 14 years old and I've been working ever since. So, I mean, I've always been, um, you know, finding work and trying to just kind of be financially responsible and just kind of be independent. So moving out at 16, um, I definitely didn't like move out to like party or move out to like cause more trouble. It was more of like, I need to move out to like survive in a way, um, uh, looking back at it now. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until I went to college, really. It was when I moved across the state to go to school, um, I started getting closer with my parents, you know, and that's, um, that's something that I'm still in the process of, um, you know, kind of being close to my parents. And, and, you know, to this day, I like to say that I have a really good relationship with both my mom and my dad, where, you know, we speak on the phone, you know, every week. And, and so forth like that. So, you know, being away from home, especially being long distant, definitely help kind of rekindle that relationship a little bit. You know, when you were going to college and despite the fact that you had moved out in an early age, did your parents still support you in, in some way? Were they uh, supporting you to get into school despite the fact that you were uh, away from them? Because yeah. I was wondering how that whole process was and, yeah. and thinking to myself, you know, anybody who leaves, runs away from home at such right. a young age, they, you know, end up not being able to have access to resources to be able to continue, yeah. like, for example, to get into school. So how were you able to get into school despite the turmoil that you were dealing with? Right. So, I mean, I, um, I, was, I always enjoyed school. Um, I, I mean, I skipped classes in high school to go goof off i think most kids did that but i always had decent grades i mean i always had like a's and b's and stuff like that in high school and i always enjoyed just learning really i always enjoyed um learning from others so i mean school wasn't the biggest challenge for me uh, when it came to like the resources and like the money to go to school i heavily relied on um, scholarships and also um financial aid like fafsa um you know into some respect uh since my family were pretty, you know, their income was not that high at all. 
Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm talking like under 30k a year kind of thing, combined income. I was yeah. actually, I was actually able to receive a little more support financially and grants and scholarships and like that to go to school. Um, you know, and kind of making, because after high school, I ended up going to like a community college kind of thing to take get some generals out of the way. Yeah, so that transition was easy. Then I was in a point in my life where I just needed some um, some change, and you know that was kind of the summer where I ended a five and a half year relationship with my girlfriend, packed up everything in my car, and just traveled across the state. Just kind of just kind of like disappeared in that way, and mm-hmm. I think that leap that that leap of faith a little bit kind of just you know forced me to um, just do it, like just like just jump in a car and just do it, like there's no turning back kind of thing. So getting accepted to, you know, college wasn't that hard for me either. Uh, when I was in school, like I said, like financially, I heavily relied on just financial aid, uh, grants and stuff like that. My family, um, you know, there were times where they were able to support maybe like, you know, 100 bucks a month, 200 bucks a month kind of thing, uh, just to kind of, you know, give me a little cushion for food and whatnot. But I mean... I think at the end of the day, I just spent a lot of my time studying and a lot of my time working. So I just, you know, just pick up odd jobs here and there. And yeah, so. Wow. Thank you for, uh, for sharing that. And and also, it's just really, uh, really also important to point out that that uh, financial aid is very essential to getting into education. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I got through college because of my mom's uh, work because she had worked in the factory for 30 plus years at that point. And I had received a scholarship based on how much of how much uh, she had put into her company at that time. And to see her work 60 plus 60, 70 hours a week, having to deal wow. with pay cuts constantly. Wow. And part of it was a result of my own scholarship. It, I have very mixed feelings about it because of of what it uh, of how much it took out of her to mm. do that, and yeah. eventually it would lead to her stroke several years ago. So it's always been a very touchy subject for me, but yeah. at the same time, I know that that's what she wanted. She wanted me to go to school. She, uh, my parents both uh, really pushed hard for it. So I'm very thankful, but I hated the fact that it came at that kind of cost or any family members who had to really, really struggle to make ends meet. And, and I think that it also shows the importance of financial aid and especially for lower income communities, uh, because not all of the Asian American communities are this typical model minority. There's a lot of them that do struggle with economic hardship and don't have the full access to send their kids to school or to send them uh, for better resources uh, versus more affluent communities. So yeah, there's a big disparity in um, there's a big disparity in how people's access to education are uh, through uh, through how much income you make, and that yeah. is uh, and I think that you, that your story is a very is the kind of story that is so important because without that access, who knows what would have happened? It would have changed oh, the trajectory of your yeah. life completely. Definitely. So, yeah, and, uh, and yeah. I kind of owe that to just having the opportunity to have like a learning experience. You know, moving out at such a young age, I had to be independent and financially kind of just responsible. So it's like when I went to college and I got financial aid. Yeah, I got it. But then, you know, they would probably deposit, I don't know, like a couple grand 
whatever into your account. And at that time, when you're that age, a couple grand is a lot of money. It is. And I think a lot of students may be not aware or have, you know, the education to be financially like literate or like responsible. And students may go out and just spend that money on, you know, frivolous things that may not even be worth it for your education. So I remember, I remember, you know, seeing that amount of money for the first time, I was really excited, but I knew that was temporary. I knew if I was to spend it right away, I could not, you know, pay a semester. And that was pretty much my college. I mean, lived, I lived semester to semester. Um, and I, I was definitely cheap too. I, uh, I'm still on my diets. Oh, for sure, man. And like, I remember going to like Walmart and getting like those, I had a flip phone and I'd go into Walmart and just get like those cheap, like prepaid plans that you had to like, yeah. still like pay for the minute and text messages. Yeah, yeah. I was like dirt cheap. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just how, you know, kind of, you know, kind of yeah. live economically. And talking about the environment that you grew up in, um, Sioux Falls, you had um, grown up in a mostly white community, but what was the experience like being at school, like, and your interactions, especially uh, as you were still going through the tensions with your family and, but going into school, going yeah. into the environment that you grew up in. So um, when yeah. you say school, are you referring to more like high school? Um, I would say through, um, through grade school, through high school, but just kind of yeah. like a general, like, because, uh, because obviously as you get older or as you as you're a kid you stand out you know you're right. you're among there there's something obviously that doesn't seem to fit in with the rest yeah. of the kids right and yeah. and i think from an early uh, stage in your life it gets pointed out mm-hmm. and when it gets pointed out there's like a line in the sand and did you ever feel that kind of awkwardness because you're trying to fit in you know but at the same time you also know that you're also vietnamese as well and that you don't have people that you could talk to about your culture your teachers don't have the full knowledge about what your uh family background is or their backstory yeah no um yeah i mean my earliest memories of you know kind of just realizing i am different from all the other kids in my classroom was every day or anytime we had a sub a substitute teacher every day when we had a substitute teacher that was like m- the most dreadful day for me because mm. the beginning of the morning they would do roll call and they would always butcher my name and every time they did butcher my name the class would just like abrupt in like just laughter and it just became you know just teasing you know kids are this is like i don't know elementary school so that's something that i always um like when that first started happening, I realized, like, hey, this is why is everyone laughing at me? Like they're not laughing with me. So I think that's when I started kind of developing some thick skin with that. Um, but I also remember, like, when it comes to involving a teacher as well, it's like I remember I think this was like third or fourth grade. Um, we were talking about just like government aid or something like that, or just like how um, the government can provide help families that are in need. And I remember at the time I was so oblivious, but like my family, we were on food stamps and I remember just like kind of just like shouting in the middle of class. It's like, oh, my mom's on food stamps. It's like free food. You know, it's pretty cool. Like we don't have to pay for anything. And I remember when I said that, I remember just looking at my teacher and he just kind of like it was it was a very awkward moment for him. 
And I think all the students in the class too, I mean, we were young, we didn't really understand what food stamps was and all that stuff. But at the time, like I, at that, that moment, you know, sharing that information, uh, I saw his reaction. And I think that was also a moment of like reality for me where it's like, oh, this is different. You know, my situation is different kind of thing. Um, but I mean, going into high school, middle school, I mean, I was definitely, I mean, I wasn't the only Asian kid, but like I never hung out with the other Asian kids because I just, I don't know. Uh, it's more of like I wasn't into the same things that they were into. I was mostly into music. I was uh, into skateboarding. I was a, like a punk, like a, I was just a, you know, a troublemaker a little bit. So middle school, I was just like a What kind of troublemaker kid. were you? I'm, I'm actually kind of curious. <laughs> well, runaway, you know, like sneak out in the middle of night kind of thing. Yeah, that. Uh, you know, I've been arrested once, never been to juvie. So I guess I'm not that bad of a troublemaker. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, if you were my appearance, I was always, you know, kind of, or baggy ripped jeans, like always kind of like, just didn't really look clean cut. You know, I was kind of just kind of like scrubby kid. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, and then going into high school, I think I kept that a little bit, but I toned it down. I was still very like kind of outcast, but I think growing up, I mean, I, I, I didn't really have too many close friends and the close friends I did have were, um, you know, just like one or two that I still talk to today kind of thing but it was it was definitely i never found myself in like very extrovert environments or i never considered myself an extrovert it was always just a very introvert kept to myself um i think when i got older too i kind of just got a little more um assertive to people um especially about the small things like mispronouncing my name or just making you know asian jokes this and that like i just kind of instead of laughing and kind of making light of the moment, I just kind of just put, started putting on like this stern face of like, that's not funny, you know? And I kind of adapted this mentality, which, you know, could be a double-edged sword as well, so. Interesting point that you make on that because when you go through um, the torment or the invalidation of your own heritage, and it turns into or centers in center, positions it as a joke. You, you know, there's a there's a time where it gets so exhausting. And I yeah. know, like growing up, there were some of my friends who were white that would make jokes about mm-hmm. it. And I actually did not find them very funny. I thought they were it was kind of uh, pathetic or like you know low hanging fruit. And <laughs> and so I think like somewhere in my early 20s I became more defiant about that and but you know looking back I stayed quiet for so many years because when you talk about double-edged sword you know you could get you know physically hurt as a result and I was not a person who wanted to be not I wasn't a person then who wanted to be confrontational because I knew that the repercussions were going to be doubled down on me because I did not have the kind of friends that would really support me behind that would have my back. Right. So, and also it's one of those things where, you know, when you hear it long enough, you start to believe it too. You start to believe it too. And that's, that's, that's something that I still deal with to this day where, you know, I always have to kind of remind myself to pick myself up a little bit. I've also grown like apathetic towards a lot of things where I just don't become emotionally invested in some relationships because I am just so used to that 
you know, surface level, um, you know, small talk BS kind of thing. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I, I definitely, I definitely just kind of, and that's something I'm working on, you know, cause I, I think, I think in order to grow and to kind of, you know, grow as a, a person, you kind of have to be, kind of have to accept who you are, but also accept others around you, you know, kind of grow together. So then that's something I'm working on, but yeah, I often catch yeah. myself. It's like, yeah, I'd rather not talk to you. I'll just walk the other way. Cause I'm just so used to this uh, anxiety and, you know, when it comes to talking about my race or, you know, them showing like a, like an interest about my, where I'm from. And when I tell them I'm from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, they're like, no, like, where are you from? You know, like that kind of conversation. Like I'm, I'm just, sometimes I just get a little tired of it, but it's yeah. it is exhausting and it's also exhausting when you have to give history lessons to people especially <laughs> when you're still trying to figure out your own history which yeah, that's uh, yeah and another point that um and thank you for really sharing that perspective because uh for so long you know we start to believe after hearing that i started to believe these negative things about me to the point where I started to have self-loathing mm -hmm. of not only myself, but my own family background. Mm -hmm. And I started to feel this kind of anti-Asian resentment. Oh yeah. Like through high school, through, you know, part of college, I started to have that feeling. Yeah. I really did not want to be around many Asian people. Mm -hmm. uh, my brothers in some ways kind of internalized it. So it really wasn't until I uh, lived in Korea that I was around Asian people, but it was actually the Asian expats, mm -hmm. uh, Asian American expats, Asian British expats that, you know, came to Korea to teach that I started to find community, that I started to realize, you know what, I, I do feel like there's a sense of belonging, there's a sense of shared struggles. Mm -hmm. And and because I was so used to, you know, being around white folks, um, it made me realize that, you know, that there's another way to accept yourself without having to be validated by um, by people who are the majority and right. and that you have something special your culture is special and yeah. it is something to be proud of and that took me a really long time I probably like after um, I know you're 26 now. It probably came in a little bit after that. And right. so it was a long journey. So some people, it, it takes a little bit shorter, but others, mm -hmm. it takes a much longer period of time. And that's, it, it's sad. Yeah. But I think when you get to the point of realizing that there is power in having that pride mm -hmm. in how you grew up and knowing that, um, that your culture is special, that there is something so powerful about your own upbringing. Yeah. It's, it intimidates people. It's, oh, people. Sure. so it's, it's so, it's so easy for people to put down others because they are scared of the power that you will have once right. you see that. So yeah. I think that, you know, you're, you're, you come to those terms and I'm glad that you're still on that path mm -hmm. uh, and, and yeah. starting to see that. So, from Sioux Falls, you would then move to Denver. How did that uh, come about? And what was your experience like in Denver all of a sudden? Because you're going from, granted, it's not a coastal city, but Denver is also yeah. a city that's growing and also the diversity is starting to emerge. But from going from a place like Sioux Falls to, to uh, Denver, what was that? Uh, what got you to that point, but also what was that experience like uh, upon moving to that uh, city? 
Yeah, so I mean, it was Sioux Falls, and I went to, I moved to Rapid City, South Dakota. So that's where Mount Rushmore and the Black Hills are. That's where I went to college. So I lived in Rapid for about, um, I mean, four years total or something. Um, during the summers, I would go travel for internships. So I lived in Aberdeen, South Dakota, which is another very small town, 20,000 or so. I've lived in uh, Marshalltown, Iowa for about nine months. And that's also a very, very small town, middle of nowhere, uh, rural America. But then uh, after I graduated school, I, I, I got a job offer in Denver. And when I was looking for uh, entry-level jobs, I was... I made it um, a point to live somewhere in a city, in a large metro area, because I was just so sick and tired of just like small town communities, you know. So, I mean, that's how I ended up in Denver. Um, I had some connections uh, through my previous work experiences and graduated school. So I was able to uh, secure an entry-level job in Denver. And I've been living in Denver for two years now. This month would be two years. And... Um, Denver is uh, a gorgeous, gorgeous place to live. I mean, the mountains are always in sight, so I never feel, I mean, I always feel like little compared when you look at the mountains, but it's always, it's always like a really good, like securing, or it's like a comforting feel when I see the mountains every day. Um, I'm not too much in the outdoors, but just the, you know, the visual of the mountains is nice. Um, the diversity out here is just night and day difference in South Dakota. Um, it was actually, you know, when I started to explore more in Denver and going to like predominantly Vietnamese and Asian communities within Denver for food, restaurants, stuff like that. That's when I discovered how vibrant it actually was. And that's what actually inspired me to, um, you know, do podcasting and it inspired me to explore more of my Vietnamese heritage. Um, so, I mean, I, mean, I really thank Denver for that. You know, Denver really gave me that opportunity where I could go out to a supermarket or go to a bakery and um, listen to everyone's Vietnamese conversations. It's definitely the first time, one of the first times I could do that in my life. So that was definitely a comforting feel. Pre-Denver, uh, when you think about Asian American folks, especially of your age group, when you look at people with Asian American folks that you hear about in Seattle, uh, LA, New York, Philadelphia, D.C., mm -hmm. Chicago. What was your perceptions of the Asian American folks? Because I know that in a way you felt like you were out of this box. You know, I'm, yeah. I don't feel like I'm an Asian American person outside uh, of my own home, right? Yeah. And so I'm just very curious about that experience and what was your perception, your feelings about Asian American I mean, of your age. I, I mean, this is pre-Denver, so when I was still living in South Dakota, when I was in high school, middle school, or so whatever. I mean, I had the same, um, perhaps a very similar perception of Asian people as did white people um, in South Dakota. You know, it's like I believed in this model um, minority kind of thing where an Asian man, for example, an Asian man should look this way. An Asian man should go to um, this type of school. An Asian man should have this type of profession and all that stuff. And, you know, your cliche Asian stereotypes. I really thought that's what the majority of Asians were in, um, you know, larger communities. And, um, you know, that was a product of my surroundings, to my friend group, uh, the my access to resources. I mean, this was like still mid 2000s, 2010s, whatever. 
um, even at that time, Asian content, Asian media was not really that, you know, predominant, like Asian music, Asian film, Asian TV shows, Asian American specifically. Um, I didn't really see much of that. Uh, so yeah, my, um, my perception of, you know, Asians were just kind of, I believed whatever one else around me believed that they were just kind of typical Asians. And, you know, I think that was probably a reason why I kind of distant myself from Asians in my community. Looking back at it now, I kind of regret it. But I distant myself from that because I just didn't feel like I don't belong. I definitely don't look like them. I have really thick, you know, curly hair. Um, I, you know, I look similar to my mom more than my dad. My dad looks very Vietnamese, straight, coarse hair, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of like different like features of what a Vietnamese person should look like, you know, being mixed myself, being Cambodian and Vietnamese, I've always felt like this, that you get pigeonholed, like, okay, you're not really fully this, fully that you're, you're kind of othered and yeah. kind of put in this outside box where you yeah. don't know where to fit in and, yeah because you're uh, definitely, you don't look korean you don't look chinese you don't look japanese and i think when people think of asian people they usually associate it to east you know, asians yeah. yeah exactly and then you know you look at you know people like us we're a little darker skin we just look a little slightly different they're like you know you don't really fit into that yeah you know what's kind of funny is that you know when growing up they used to do the slant eye but the thing is i have big ass eyes probably bigger <laughs> eyes than most of my classmates or if not the same so i thought that was so ironic and so um <laughs> out of place there it's like okay you know what i think you kind of need to look at my eyes a little bit more here um yeah. but no i i i think uh you know when you come into denver you're around uh, Asian American communities, right? And and to be able to hear the Vietnamese language in those spaces, did you all of us, did you um, start taking an interest of, like, maybe I should just uh, join a community space uh, or a group um, organization to volunteer at? Were you starting to take that interest or is it something that you're looking to uh, to invest in, invest your time in? Yeah, and that's something I've always considered. Um, there's um, a couple associations out here um, for Asian communities, and I think my first um, my, one of my first steps or my first investments into that community was last year. Um, there's the uh, a Dragon Boat Festival. Are you familiar with those? I've heard of. Oh yeah, I've heard yeah. of them. Actually. Yeah, I think they're like a national kind of thing, nonprofit yeah. kind of thing. But yeah. I I went to my first uh, Dragon Boat Festival here in Denver. And I was like just blown away. Like I was outside, it was an outdoor event, and there's just like over hundreds of vendors and performances and music and um, food competitions, and everything was just Asian, like Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese. And I was surrounded by Asians, and I was like, I was just so, it was kind of intimidating, actually. And um, that was kind of my first step into kind of participating in that community. Um, since then, you know, I've uh, made some friends within that community. Uh, one of them is a, you know, a, um, a food truck owner, a Vimy's food truck owner. And uh, I've been able to, you know, speak with her and um, kind of learn about her background. And, you know, I've been able to also kind of meet other people through her as well. So it's, um, I'm not a part of any like association or any kind of formal group or anything like that. And that's something I would definitely consider I'm doing. Um, I think at the end of the day, the biggest challenge for me is 
still kind of overcoming that high school self, like my high school self. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It takes time. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, I'm probably going to deal with this for a while. It's where I just um, resort to my, you know, introvertness and but also just being around other Asians. Sometimes I just feel like this is just so new to me, you know? Yeah, I think that that was real hard. I mean, I totally relate. And just even talking to you, I just feel like it just brings back a lot of memories yeah. uh, the last several years. And when I came back to Chicago from Korea, I needed to have a community. I couldn't be in Westmont. Um, at the time that I was living in, uh, because it was just, I, I moved on from that. I'm, I'm, yeah. I feel like where my mind was at, I needed to be around people of my community. I needed to uh, take my culture very seriously. You know, this is something that I needed to know my history. I needed to get an understanding of who I am. So when I uh, came back to Chicago, I was with I2Y, which is an Asian LGBTQ plus group. So having that group was so important for me as mm-hmm. a person who was queer and uh, Asian to have that be validated, to have those identities be validated at the same time. Because for a while I thought, you know, no Asian community is going to want me because I'm a queer right. man. And I thought that also played into another layer of, okay, you know, I'm not fully Vietnamese, I'm not fully Cambodian, I can't speak either languages, and I'm a queer man. So mm-hmm. I felt a lot of, of, of my self defect, my self defense mechanism really stirring up yeah i would tell you like one of my one of my moments that i'll never forget was a couple years ago there was a cambodian new year's event in 2015 and i had not been to a cambodian new year's event in at least over a decade i mean i my parents well my dad and i were estranged uh and we had not done any family events in such a long time. So when I was coming in as a volunteer to help out and I started seeing families and then I started seeing my dad's families, my dad's um, friends' families arriving, I started having a panic attack and I started getting really triggered. I'm like thinking to myself, you know, yeah. I don't have my family with me. I've always felt like I never belong. So the, that reminder of not belonging really hit me so hard that I actually left. I walked out and I was crying and my friend, you know, Savi basically took me aside. She called me and literally just got me to go to the event, even though I kept telling her, you're not going to make me go, which was, <laughs> it, it's, I don't know how she got me to go because I'm very stubborn that way. And I would always tell her that she's probably one of the very few people that could probably change my mind after I make a decision. Uh, but I, I, I would end up going and it ended up being a safe evening because I was around people that I needed to be around with at that moment. And I felt safe being around my friends and that I felt wanted. Uh, I felt like I deserved to be there. And that was so critical to me because a couple of months later I would become a board member for the Cambodian Museum. Like that tells you what it would lead to where that path can take you. Right. And yeah, I mean that that's what happens when you start to realize, you know what? No, I'm gonna be here because I deserve to be here. Mm-hmm. I'm unique in my own ways. I have something to offer. And as going back to what we were talking about, once we have that power, you know, it's it's a very incredible force right and people better look out once we have that realization <laughs> that we have something to offer and you know and uh, so that's really awesome that you are starting to you know 
take those initiatives. You're starting to participate in events. You're um, starting to immerse yourself. Um, what else are you uh, looking to get involved in? Uh, get involved in? There's other particular projects because I know that you had done your podcast, which I do want to talk about. But are there other areas of your own history? of your own culture that you would really like to explore more or actually have deeper conversations with your own family about? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is I wanted to go to Vietnam for the first time this year. Awesome. Uh, so I'm actually, I don't even have a passport. I'm actually, I scheduled an appointment to get a passport in a couple of weeks here. So once I get that done, that's going to be one checkbox. And then next is, you know, planning out my trip. So that's going to be a really big moment for me. That's something that I've been wanting to do for a very long time. Are you going to go with your family or are you going to go by yourself? Um, I'll be going with my fiance. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh. My how, does your, how does your parents feel about it? Have they expressed the desire to come back to visit? Um, yeah. I mean, I think they would love to go back to uh, visit Vietnam. I think at the end of the day, it's more of like uh, we don't have you know resources and um, the means to go back to Vietnam. Uh, my dad's been back a couple times since he's immigrated to the States. My mom's only, you know, hasn't gone back since. But I'm uh, speaking through other people who've gone to Vietnam, who are Vietnamese with Vietnamese families. Um, I've been told that, you know, this trip is something that is going to help me understand my parents a little bit better about, you know, their nuances. Yes. And how they kind of their perception, um, you know, when you observe other Vietnamese people and their comfortable, normal environments. So that's something I'm looking forward to. Um, but, you know, as far as um, other things that I this year I've been trying to, you know, work sleeve started like a weekly podcast. So I was able to produce, you know, a weekly podcast all of 2019. Um, this year, I'm, I tone it down to a monthly podcast, and I've been becoming more invested in the people that I've been speaking to as far as, like, where they're from and with their backgrounds and stuff like that. Um, but I'm also, this year, um, uh, in the process of uh, writing and producing my own, you know, another uh, podcast show. And um, that's kind of focused a little bit about, uh, you know, growing up Asian American in rural America specifically mm. and i think work sleeve has just been that vessel of mine where i can just use this as like a platform to explore um, and meet people like yourself and meet other people um you know that have uh, from asian asian american backgrounds and kind of learn through that way so that's kind of my way of investing into learning more about that mm. yeah how when did you start the podcast for work sleeve and where did the work sleeve name come up and what was its purpose then to where it is now yeah so i started work sleeve probably i think it was like the fall of 2018 or so something like that um it originally started as a resource for engineering students um you know after i graduated school i wanted to kind of give back to that community a little bit and uh, I wanted to kind of provide tips and tricks and whatever to write resumes, get job interviews, um, um, specific um, challenges that engineering students would have. So I, I created a podcast that addressed those. Um, but then I think it was like a couple episodes in, 
I just kind of caught myself naturally um, talking more about my background as being Asian American and being Vietnamese. And I think um, naturally the podcast just kind of pivoted to focus on um, my heritage and exploring that. Um, but yeah, work sleeve, the name comes from, um, you know, like the, the, there's a saying of like wearing your heart on your sleeves kind of thing. And I think mm-hmm. I was just at the moment, I think I was just trying to find like a play on words. And I, uh, I always thought it's like, you know, if anything that I'm most proud of to this moment in my life was I'm very proud of my work. I'm very proud of work. And I think work is something that anyone can do regardless of, anything really your race gender um sexual preference or anything like that like anyone can work and i mean work i'm not talking about like um you know like blue collar white collar work i'm just talking about like work like you can work towards something and i think that's something that i'm very proud of and i think that was one thing that i kind of wanted to kind of display kind of you know represent for the podcast too so i mean at this point you know work sleeve is a it's more, it's a little bit more than a podcast. It's, I'm kind of using it kind of like a production company a little bit because in 2019 I was able to produce my show and then I was able to produce, um, another show. And then I the podcast actually gave me the opportunity to travel to New York to help a company record their first podcast. So I did some field recording with that. So I've been able to use work sleeve, um, not just as a podcast, but using it as a production company kind of thing. So that's what I plan on doing with Work Sleep. Like I'd like, to, I would love to take it to make, uh, you know, TV shows, short films, um, content, music, anything like that. So those are kind of my hobbies. That's excellent. I am really excited that you're looking to see where this goes and furthering your ambitions. And uh, it kind of, it kind of like answers part of like the 2020 year question of. Like, what are you hoping to accomplish for this year? Any more that you would like to think about as this year starts to progress? Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't believe January is almost over. <laughs> no, I, I know. It's, it's hard to believe, you know. And I'm, uh, and by this point, uh, with this podcast season, I'm looking obviously springtime and uh so yeah it's it's going at a furious pace so yeah, i see. like you you were like talking about how to the need to slow down uh with the episodes and when i was looking to take a little bit of a mini break for between the first and second season i did not do that because the momentum was just telling right. me i gotta keep doing this there's it's too it's too great right now for me to ignore that. So, yeah, yeah it's hard because sometimes our own ambitions kind of get in the way of things, oh, and we have yeah. to remind ourselves to to uh, settle down just a bit to let things uh, let things start to manifest itself, right. rather than just you know going attack mode twenty four seven. So, yeah, I was just kind of wondering your take on for the rest of this year. Yeah, I mean. Um... Yeah, I mean, going into December and January, I was trying to, I was kind of beating myself over a little bit because I was like, dang, I don't have any plans for 2020 because I was just like, I'm still not done with 2019. So I was kind of in this phase, but lately I've been kind of getting my head and getting my thoughts more aligned. Uh, For 2020, I definitely want to focus on more, um, well, two things really. I want to focus on meaningful work and meaningful relationships. So those are kind of, I just want to keep it at those two things and see where it takes me. So, I mean, for 2020, I'd like to produce and curate and, um, 
you know, produce my own podcast show, something that could, um, something that I want to take time and to write a script for, um, record, produce it, and then release it, um, kind of like a, a season, seasonal, similar to what you're doing with the uh, Button Main Chronicles. Um, that actually gave me some inspiration to do that. So thank you for that. Um, thank you. So, yeah, I want to do that. And I also, you know, want to um, do some more music stuff. So I kind of want to, you know, infuse my podcast with some music that I've been writing. Um, but I've also, you know, wanted to take worse leave uh, and travel with it. Um, and I've thought about Chicago. So, I mean, hey. I hope so too, man. Opportunities I hope so there, too. Like, I would love to go to Chicago and interview you in person. Like, I would love to do that. Oh. Thank you. I mean, I don't think I'm that important to be quite honest with you. I've, I've got a ways to go before I even, but it's an, but thank you. I really, I'm, I'm quite flattered. So I, I really appreciate it. I think you're going to love Chicago. I think you're going to love the little Vietnamese community that we have here. And um, it is, it's, it's hard to describe Chicago in a nutshell, but you just have to experience it and get a taste of what it's about. So, yeah, I mean, just know that the door is always welcome uh, for people like yourself. So, yeah, uh, don't hesitate to come to Chicago. So where can people find your work? Yeah, so you can find more information about my podcast uh, by simply searching WorkSleeve uh, or go to WorkSleeve.com. You can also find WorkSleeve podcast on Spotify, Apple um, iTunes and Apple Podcasts and Google Play and so forth. Um, you can also contact me um, at tunewin at worksleeve.com. You can also find me on socials, worksleeve on Instagram and Twitter and stuff. I, I don't really know how to use social media, so uh, just reach out and I'll talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, how do you promote your po- how are you going to promote your podcast if you don't know how to do social media? That's a that's a good question. I mean, my, but my, my level of promotion is like post a picture. Hey guys, new episodes up and that's it. Like I have no, there's no methodology. There's no marketing strategy. There's nothing. And I just, that is a lot of work though. I will tell you that is a lot of work just even doing that. Sometimes I feel like I can never get off of social media. I feel like it feeds into my Gemini persona where I can't be away from it. But at the same time, I, yeah. I, I spent like I had like a social media detox, so it wasn't until work sleeve when I got back onto social media. So I was off of social media for like three, four years. And then wow. when I saw the podcast, I was like, oh crap. I need to like share this somehow with other people. I was like, dang it, I'll just make an Instagram and then you know, I kind of just drew from there. So I've been a recovering social media addict. <laughs> <laughs> might re- might have a little relapse possibly you know yeah. it's it's very possible i'm not recovering from anything i'm i'm a constant social media addict and i'm gonna admit that right now right here <laughs> that i do have a problem that i'm okay with that problem for now mm-hmm. it's just, i just kind of have to lessen it a little bit it's like going from like 10 cigarettes to just five cigarettes so that's kind of where that's kind of my mentality going into it so yeah Yeah. i want to say thank you really so much for sharing um your story and and also like really sharing your perspective and it's really greatly appreciated to hear um perspectives uh from you know vietnamese folks especially from the mixed identity in other communities especially in rural communities i often feel that uh, those voices are also not included as part of the narrative especially when the api narrative in general has also it's a it's been a struggle to 
have that as part of our American history. And we're starting to see that change where our our own history is starting to get included for the first time. And we're starting to see um, the, the reemergence of, of past API leaders who have been a big part of movements, whether it's in the, uh, the railroad strike of the late 19th century to, uh, to the folks who were uh, resisting the Japanese incarceration. So mm -hmm. we're starting to see that emergence. And it's also very important that these voices aren't just limited to coastal cities, but that they're included in places like in the South, places like in the, uh, uh, the Appalachian to the Dakotas, um, the Midwest. So yeah, I'm so very thankful for you sharing your story through your podcast. And I hope that everyone gets a chance to check it out or, you know, get in contact with uh, Tung uh, through it, because I think it's, really awesome that you know we're seeing more of our own community members uh have created their own platform and using their platform to uplift other folks to do the same and i hope that you do that for your siblings too because i know they're very young and i hope that you're able to you know also uh inject part of that uh curiosity that you've been um turning into something meaningful mm -hmm. yeah yeah thanks randy it was a pleasure speaking with you and um you know i'm really glad uh, we were able to connect on social see if i didn't have social i would never have met you so i'm very um, i'm very happy to have, uh, have this relationship with you and um definitely also want to congratulate you on the work that you've done with about me chronicles and i definitely find it inspiring and you know it, it definitely motivates myself to continue doing what i'm doing and sometimes i feel like uh, what we are doing right now is just simply sharing our story um, in the hopes that, you know, someone else can kind of learn or get something from it, per se. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for your time. And uh, we will talk again and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you in Chicago soon. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Have a good one, Tung. Bye-bye. Yep, Bye-bye. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunmy Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunmy underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Thank you.